Welcome, friends, to The Human Voice. We have a return guest. For those of you who have subscribed to Rumors of Grace in the past, I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode number 35 with Dr. Jerome Libba. He is referred to as the patient doctor because it was his own quest for a neurological well-being that led him to specialize in complex, unresolved neurological cases. His practice explores how functional neurology, neuroplasticity, and tools like the Enneagram can improve holistic well-being. Dr. Jerome created and released the first ever neuroscience-based model of the Enneagram in his book, The Brain-Based Enneagram. He currently resides in Atlanta with his wife and their three children. He's also the author of Whole Identity, a Brain-Based Enneagram Model. Dr. Jerome, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. How's everything going down in Atlanta since last time we talked? I think it was probably, well, we've spoken a couple of times. I think the last time was April of 2020. And before that, it was back in 2019. So how, how's life been treating you? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, I, I tell everybody, I think it's one of those things where we're all uh, Walt Whitman quotes, right? We contain multitudes. But, you know, it's interesting in their first podcast in November of 19, it was the, it was the kind of the excitement of, of the book coming out and, and the, the kind and intentional responses and the great feedback and questions from that. And then in April, we're looking at the, the first month into what would become you know, the global experience of encountering COVID. And at that point, my wife was three and a half months pregnant with our third child that was conceived before COVID was on the lips of really anybody in the country. So it's been, it's been wild. Truthfully and transparently, it, I'm grateful for 16 years of being married to an incredible woman that helped us to navigate the last year as a family and also at the same time as a patient. The last year and a half has been the most difficult that I've had in the last decade decade in terms of migraines. I had over 120 migraines last year and I had 16 just last month. So it's been uh, it's been a very challenging space and I think a good portion of that which we may jump into in different ways today is you know my practice got busier and I was very intentional about guarding my time but that doesn't mean that the severity of the cases that were coming in especially as somebody who's hyper efficient in two energy from an enneagram language standpoint that I absorbed absorbed a lot of encounters over the last mm. 18 months. And that along with all of the other things that I know are my susceptibilities with, with uh, regards to my chronic pain and my migraine history, it, it, it definitely, it, my body bore the brunt of a lot of the last year and a half of encounters with people suffering through pretty significant things. Mm. So on one hand, the answer to your question is that it, it is a testament to an 18-year relationship with three kids, five and under for us to have a fairly good year last year because I think, you know, I always tell everybody, if you look at last year with COVID and somebody says, you know, oh, it's not that bad, they're either lying or it just wasn't the hardest year they've ever had. So I think for my wife and I, we we had harder years before last year, but for a lot of folks who came into the practice, it was quintessentially their most difficult year. And and that, uh, that interaction definitely uh, impacted me as a patient fairly significantly. Mm. So it's mm. both good and challenging at the same time. 
I'm so sorry to hear about your your migraines. I, I wish I could empathize deeper, but I can only empathize in this fact of I've had one migraine in my life and it was horrendous because, yeah. and it was probably three years ago. And up until that time, I had had bad headaches and pain and would take something Advil or something, but stress headaches. So I never understood what a migraine was. I thought I did. I can't even imagine, Jerome, what that must be, does it incapacitate you? Does it lay you out? Do you have to go in a dark room? What does that look like for you? Yeah, no, and I appreciate I appreciate the empathy in, in the question. It, in, a, in an ideal setting, it, it does it does. I'm afforded the opportunity to lay down and mm-hmm. to rest. They are incredibly difficult as context. You know, I, I had the the top two teeth, uh, the the top back teeth in my in my top row of teeth were removed as a result of the number of experiences that I had with nausea and vomiting due to my migraine history. And you have to, you have to have a lot of experience with, with throwing up to have teeth removed, right? So it's, it's a very familiar experience for me to, to be hit very, very hard. The challenge is, you know, I, I have about a three month wait list and about 60% of the people that come to see me are from out of state. So when somebody who is like last week, I, I have a, a 15 year old in my office who I'm doing an intensive with that's waited three months to see me. And he's attempted suicide three times in the last six months. And I have a migraine start. It's not one of those situations where you can go, hey, will you go home? I'll see you tomorrow. It's one of those situations where, and this is where I I have to be so conscientious and I communicate this to interns and other providers that I work with and other leaders, you know, that for me to effectively practice what I preach and for me to effectively practice at all, what I've had to do over the last several years is build in a lot of an intentional rest because the answer to your question is when I have a migraine and I'm in front of somebody who has waited to see me and I don't have the opportunity to reschedule them for next week, I have to compartmentalize those experiences and navigate that with them in a way that still provides really effective care, but it is going to cost me something. Hmm. So what I've done in my schedule this year is every other week, especially for the way that I'm wired, it actually still makes me a bit nauseous to, to say it out loud because it's so counterintuitive to the way that I'm wired. But every other week, I'm unavailable for patients. So I'm, I'm on a patient care week this week, and next week, I'll be completely unavailable. And I've had to set hmm. that up to where if I go back to back without times and chances to recover, my availability to be in a really legitimate and available kind of resource for my patients and also my family goes down. Hmm. And not only that, the quality of the care is going to change, but the quality of life is going to change. And as somebody who has survived suicide attempts, I have to know that if I'm planning on being here 10 years from now, then I have to be comfortable with being unavailable next week. And that's been one of the most significant, but one of the hardest decisions um, to make. But realistically, because I cannot just go home when I'm working with somebody in the complex cases that I work with. I build in a lot of downtime and buffer to be able to make sure that I'm adequately resting. Mm. Mm. Wow. Well, I'm sure that I know I am through your writings and also I'm sure your patients are very grateful for the way that you have not only been intentional about that, but also figured out a way that you can not only take care of yourself, but it at the same time allows you to to serve other people. And and that's that's huge. I mean, I, I can't imagine there's so much to be grateful for. I'm sure in your own life you're super grateful, but to know that there are those around me who plan their lives around pain so that they can serve other people that 
it's very touching. So thank you for doing that. It means a lot. You're welcome. Thank you for acknowledging. Yeah, for sure. So without going into detail, again, if if anybody would like to go back and hear your life story and, and how you arrived at what you do today and kind of your own patient journey of, of pain, and I, I know that I believe you said you were in an accident and some other things, you can go back to episode number 35 uh, and listen to it. But can you just give us a flyover to set the stage for the rest of our conversation, maybe give a, a synopsis uh, Reader's Digest version? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I can give you the bullet points version. Yeah. I am a South African-born Congolese immigrant. My family came over on asylum status from Congo in Zaire in the early 90s to Knoxville, Tennessee, North East Tennessee. I know that's your world as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents and my mom was British born, but Zimbabwean raised. And when we came to the States in 1990, we came over with $100, two suitcases, a bipolar grandmother and a parrot. It's, it was the start to a very, very bad, bad story. But my, I was run over by a car when I was eight in Maryville, Tennessee, mm. had two concussions in high school, had my dad pass away as a freshman in high school. I was hit by two drunk drivers in separate events before I turned 21 did an undergrad in digital animation, special effects production after high school, and then moved into music full-time with my brothers. And throughout this journey, started having some pretty intense migraines at 17. And after our music career kind of came to an abrupt halt as a result of, of someone passing away and, and that, that opportunity changing, I sat down with my wife about five years into our marriage and said, where do we go next? And realized, you know, that I, I hadn't been able to find a provider who knew how to work with someone like me as a complex unresolved case. And specifically, the opportunity to, to work on somebody like me with the goal of becoming more whole, with working into wellness and wholeness and holistic care. So I decided to pursue a doctorate in chiropractic for the alternative holistic approach, but specialize in neurology for the difficult and complex cases. So I ended up pursuing a doctorate in that, got board certified in physical therapy, uh, chiropractic, functional neurology, and then I'm also board eligible in six other areas that include traumatic brain injury, childhood neurological developmental disorders, movement disorders, vestibular rehabilitation, all sorts of stuff. And what it ended up being was that by the time that I graduated seven years ago, my goal was to minimize the number of times that someone would experience with me what I had experienced with providers over the course of the previous 10 years, which was, we just don't know. So every single thing that I encounter as a clinician, as a patient, as somebody writing brain-based Enneagram content, as somebody with a background, as a recovering charismatic working in the field of what's called neurotheology, which is the intersection of neuroscience and spirituality, it just put me into a space where every topic that I navigate, I am hoping, if at all possible, to connect someone with a relevant resource for their current relevant situation that moves them into becoming more whole and connecting to something that feels a little bit more tangible and applicable to their mm-hmm. current situation, much more so than we're not sure what to do and we don't know what to call that because mm-hmm. that was my lived experience for you know uh, a, a very long time. Mm. And what makes you unique in the sense of there's a lots of, of people who specialize in holistic neurology. There's a lot of people who specialize in physiatry. There's people who specialize in all these different things, psychiatry, and, it, and it's a popular thing right now. And, and we're going to dive into some mental health issues kind of in the middle of COVID, post-COVID, wherever we are right now. But 
What, but what, what is unique about what you offer there and why is it that people come from miles around to, to, to spend time with you and receive the, the help and the healing that you offer? That's a great question. I think simply put, probably the biggest thing, Bob, is that I, I tell people I'm like a personal trainer for the brain. And the reality is that if you're going to a personal trainer, that person is supposed to support you in not only establishing what your goals are, but also letting you know where your strengths are that you can reinforce, where your weaknesses are that you can engage and kind of use as opportunities and where your blind spots are. But more than anything, a personal trainer is designed to equip you and then get out of your way. So the biggest thing that's different for me from a holistic perspective is we bring in the neuropsychology, we bring in the mental health and the emotional health, we bring in the psychosomatics of what is happening in your psychology that can impact your body and vice versa, introducing the idea of what we can do from a biomechanics standpoint, but also from a, you know, there's fa fascinating books that folks can read nowadays from Norman Deutsch or, or Dan Siegel or, you know, Bessel van der Kolk. But when you're looking at all of these new topics that are coming out, being able to practically translate that for somebody in a way that they can leave after just a few sessions and continue working on themselves at home. I think the biggest thing is that my job is to listen, get a comprehensive picture of what's happening, but then more than anything, encourage someone to, if they're not already in the driver's seat, be able to get in the driver's seat and then stay in the driver's seat in their own journey for health. Because a lot of the times, I think if I'm honest, even in my own experience and with a lot of the people that I've talked to, it is very rare, almost never do I encounter someone coming into the office and saying, up to this point, I feel heard and I feel equipped. So mm. when somebody leaves with me, my goal is to say, do you feel heard and do you feel equipped? Because if somebody feels heard and they feel equipped in their healthcare journey, the probability of them moving even a remotely closer to their goal is exponentially higher. And it's amazing how many great clinicians we have, but how few patients are able to legitimately and truthfully say, I feel heard, I feel understood, and I feel equipped. And that's the unique nature of what I do mm. is, is trying to make sure that we can legitimately answer those questions. And if we can't, I'm probably not the best person to continue moving forward with you. Mm. That's so good. Thank you for that. I, I think I think what I hear, the thread that I always hear from you is there's this deep desire that you have, not only in your self-education from, from obviously your own pain and being a patient yourself, but you want to figure out what what is that human connection that is physical, physiological, psychological, and spiritual even that makes us the whole person. And, and I love that, that that is your approach because it seems like it's so easy to see ourselves as compartmentalized as, well, that's a brain disorder. That's a physical disorder. That's a gut disorder. You know, that's a, that might be a psychological, you know, childhood wound problem that you need to deal with. And, and what I always what you always bring us back to, and I really appreciate it, is no, you're all connected. All of these things are you. And they're, yes, you might have a problem with something, some of these, but you don't understand many times, I know I don't, how the brain and the body is so connected. You know, I, I mentioned to you, I've studied, I study psychology myself, and the book, 
the body keeps the score that's really popular right now about yeah. trauma, about how our bodies really does do keep score when it comes to these things that we think are psychological or brain-based exclusive actually are manifesting itself in other areas. And, and I know that they're finding and studies are coming out more and more how, for instance, your gut is your second brain and, and much of depression and, and other psychological disorders can, can even originate or be you know, worsened by the state of our gut and our gut biome and the chemicals that are manufactured there. So I would, I'd like to kind of start going down that road a little bit in the rest of our discussion, because you know, this is the human voice and we are talking about you know, what it means to be human and the journeys that we're all on. I believe, Dr. Jerome, and I, I think I can speak for you, that we're on this really unique and odd collective journey, I would say, in the past 15 months that's revealed many things, you know, everything from worldwide pandemic to the murder of George Floyd to the whole fear and discussion around vaccinations to January 6th and the election the division in our country, I can imagine, and I'd love for you to share maybe a couple of stories and examples. What are you seeing in your patients? What are you seeing in people? What are you seeing in the human race that's maybe different and unique, good, bad, ugly? And what are, what are some of the potential helps, warnings, advice that you can give people who are listening to this? Can you kind of open that box and explore what you feel and see and, and maybe what you're doing in your practice? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in in the, the, the grand scale of, of such a, a kind of a comprehensive on-ramp, it's such a fascinating thing to look at, Bob, because there's so many different contexts that you give there, right? That you're looking at socioeconomics, you're looking at pol political, you're looking clinical, you're looking, I mean, there's so many different ways to look at it. Pandemic, general healthcare. I think the easiest way to frame it out is that we're having a, a general conversation around human resilience, right? We're having a, a conversation around what can the human condition encounter before it really either becomes triggered, becomes overwhelmed, burns out. You know, what is, what is the idea of how much we can encounter before we become symptomatic and how do our symptoms present and what systems do they show up? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of metaphor and a lot of allegory to what we're seeing in the, the world in terms of a health encounter in the individual and the state of health in a, in a city and a nation and a country in the world. But I think it comes to down to resilience, right? And when I say resilience, resilience has a lot of definitions. I'll give you mine clinically in, in, in every context that I work in. Resilience is knowing the difference between discomfort and trauma. And the hmm. difference between discomfort and trauma is the length of time for recovery. So the way that this shows up in the practice, and it shows up in a lot of different spaces, because you know every every clinician over the last you know year and a half is like every restaurant owner. They've become the the gatekeepers uh, and and the the surrogate police in terms of what is and isn't appropriate within their established workspace, right? Because everybody's got so many different things in terms of whether you have a mask, whether you have a vaccine, whether you go out, whether you know all of these different variables of of what's What's appropriate from a mental and emotional and physical health engagement standpoint, and realistically, what's coming into the office right now that's different compared to two years ago that I, I actually hope is profoundly catalytic 
is that there are so many people so much more aware of their own mental and emotional health or the lack thereof, right? Because when you talk about resilience in these spaces, what was happening for me two years ago is I was specializing in complex cases that have profoundly difficult symptomatology. Now what we're seeing is people who are going through profoundly difficult situations and they're manifesting a bunch of really, really strange, unique symptomatology. Even COVID is showing that from long haulers to the random loss of smell and taste and all of these strange neurological findings. You know, there's a lot of different ways that we could talk about it, but I think the shorthand answer is this really opens up the conversation and opens up the opportunity to talk about what is my own relative state state and stage of health, not only physically, but mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, but more than anything, what is my current state of resilience and what is my current strategy for being aware of any of that, right? This is so much a conversation around self-awareness as well, because one of the statements that I've used very regularly over the last year, regardless of where you stand on any of the aforementioned topics that you pointed out, is it's very important, when we, especially when we talk about psychosomatics and the way that the brain shows up to protect the body and the way the body shows up to protect your livelihood and your survival strategy, because everything, everything that you just mentioned is directly connected to innate survival strategies and whether or not you feel safe and to mm. what degree you feel safe. So one of the questions that I think is relevant for the patients that I'm working with that are dealing with significant things or the everyday layperson who's sitting at home trying to decide if they're going to go into the grocery store and shop from every topic that you just mentioned, the phrase that I use is, or the question that I use is it's important to ask yourself, is my way of life being threatened or is my actual life being threatened? Because if your way of life is in danger, that's a vastly different consequence than your actual life being in danger and being threatened. The challenge is that our bodies, through the body keeps the score and polyvagal therapy and all these other things that we're learning, your body doesn't have the ability to differentiate between running late for a flight and somebody pulling a gun on you. It doesn't have the capacity to differentiate watching George, George Floyd be murdered on TV and then wondering if your own child of the same color may not make it home. It's watching a family member die in front of you in real time. So when you get pulled over as a black person, your actual life is in danger as far as your body is concerned. But then you're having a conversation about whether or not you feel your freedoms are at risk and your way of life is being threatened. And now the consequence is to respond as a people group as if your actual life is in danger. So I would just say, as you go through all of these conversations, whether it's COVID, it's politics, it's healthcare, it's a mass mandate, it's how we take care of ourselves. Mm. It's a really helpful, I think, orientation and starting point to say, is this uncomfortable or is it traumatic? How long is it going to take me to recover? And is my actual life in danger or is my way of life being threatened? And because in those scenarios, the, what your body believes is how it is going to show up, right? When you talk about these things that we're learning, we're really starting to understand that you have a mental and emotional immune system that's as powerful as your physiological immune system, that if you have a traumatic event and you even remotely encounter anything that even 
in, in the slightest way feels the same, your body is going to kick into gear, whatever protocol that particular trigger was built in. So if I have chicken pox when I was five and I encounter some herpes zoster strain when I'm 45, I've got a protocol on how to handle that. But now what we're finding is if I was abused as a five-year-old or if I was traumatized as a 15-year-old and I have adverse childhood experiences and now I'm had, having adverse adult experiences, what are the protocols that my body and my brain have built to keep me alive? Because even if 30 years go by, if I encounter anything that even remotely feels the same, my body's going to kick into the same degree of intensity, regardless of the amount of time that's passed. Mm. And that's really important. Yeah, it really is. And this, the idea of, of adverse childhood experiences, it's interesting how we as adults many times, we search for those and we can identify and it's almost like adverse experiences only happen in childhood and then they affect us for the rest of our lives. So we're always looking back. But I think what you're saying and what we've experienced as a human race is we've all gone through an adverse experience the past 15 months. And some people have gone through traumatic experiences. Some people have gone through discomforts, but overall, everything was turned up in volume. I'd love to hear you respond to that, but I'd also love to hear you respond to maybe some of the things that we haven't seen before, i.e. forced quarantine, isolation from human touch and contact, mm -hmm. forced online work and school, staring at yourself while you're on a Zoom call, those type things. I'd love to hear maybe what's unique about the last 15 years. I'm sorry, 15 yeah. months. <laughs> no, absolutely. Which, And that's a funny thing, you know, <laughs> it's a joke in the slip, but the one of the interesting things that you you just exampled there just by 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 chance is time has been very weird over the last year and a half, mm -hmm. right? Not, what, what day is it? What month am I in? People are, people are meeting me for the first time in the last couple of months that don't even know that I have a nine-month-old, right? Mm. My twin brother has had two children that I have not met. <laughs> it's like, they, this is, he's got a one-year-old and a two-week-old. Mm. And these are things where it is, time is different. Social engagement is different personal relationship with the person in the mirror and body dysmorphia and social dysmorphia and you know how do i fit into the context of all of this it has completely upended our normal style of engagement but it's also the interesting thing this is the first recorded pandemic in history that happened in real time right so every other pandemic that has ever happened was not communicated mm -hmm. in real time so the fear of it the the stress of it the 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 response or the lack thereof whatever your perspective is everybody gets an opportunity to have an immediate update on what the state of the world is based on our level of interconnectedness for technology right so mm -hmm. our experience with what feels like a legitimate threat or what feels like a non-issue especially based on the news source or the the source of information that we use to garner our understanding i think probably some of the most unique things that we see is the way that the brain works as an example is six 15 to 17 generations to have a change in genetic code for the body to adapt in a way that genetically it says this has been consistent enough that we should make it a new standard, height, skin color, 
you know, hair color, like all of these different things that make us who we are from a genetic standpoint, the brain is designed and the body is designed to adopt and incorporate and assimilate changes over a very long period of time to make sure that that information is really reliable. And the challenge that we've had uniquely over the last year and a half, more so than any other experience, I think, in any other previous encounter, is that the information whiplash that's happening as a result of all of the things that are happening in the world and also our social, relational engagement. We've had so much whiplash about, am I allowed to go out? Am I allowed to stay in? What's the appropriate thing to do? Because I'll give you another example that this is a very standard question that comes up in the office, which I won't answer outright because I can't do that for everybody, but I'll give you an example. Is everybody who comes in, regardless of what they believe in, is asking each other, what, what, what do you do when it comes to wearing a mask? And the reason I say that as an example is you've got an entire global experience where everybody is trying to figure out how to answer the same question. And everybody's perspective is different. Everybody's encounter is different. Whether you believe it or not, you have an opinion on the same topic, right? And how many people now own eight to 12 to 15 masks so they own none based on what their belief system is? I think it's just a very interesting situation that this is going to be in hindsight one of the most specific events where globally everyone had the same adverse experience and that changed the fabric of the way that people interact from a work from home situation to what feels real to, for example, I work a lot with pediatric cases and the number of self-harm, suicide, suicidal ideation, the mental health of middle school to high school ages is going to be something that we are going to see the impact for and with, I think, for a very, very long time, because you've generationally taken a developmental group of human beings and absolutely upended their normal style of engagement, and they are a generation built on social engagement. And the interesting thing is it also creates this, this, this quasi kind of engagement where these adolescents, for instance, you know, Gen Z and, and millennials are so used to being a social media group. But what we're realizing is no matter how connected everyone is through social media, it is still hardwired for us as human beings to desire social interaction community-based interaction. We are built for community. So although there's so much social engagement, the inability to be on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok sitting side by side with another human being is a very, very felt absence. So I distill all of that into, mm -hmm. I think, probably the biggest thing that we're seeing and we'll see for quite some time is how everyone is having a collective experience and what the collective response is to grief. Because grief is the presence yes. of an absence. And that's Hillary McBride that says, not Dr. McBride, but I think the presence of an absence and even the presence of our own absence in other people's lives and the absence of others in our own lives. And then the sheer confusion around the way that we navigate and re-engaging. I think this is a really interesting conversation, not only around resilience, but how little we are properly equipped as human beings to process grief and trauma. And this mm -hmm. will open up more books and more research and more conversations around, I think, those three topics of grief, trauma, and resilience than probably anything we've encountered, maybe even since World War II or Vietnam.
Yeah, I agree hundred percent. And the, and the, the unknowing or unex or non-acceptance of that grief. And I think so many people don't realize, and, you know, we talk to our children and my wife's a teacher and those of us who are trying to dig in and understand what's going on, we are always reminding ourselves and reminding our, our family members and those we come in contact with that it's okay. We're all going through it, that what you're feeling is not unusual given what has happened. There is something that took place both individually and simultaneously collectively. And a lot of it, I, I believe, I'd love to hear your opinion, is borderline trauma and then borderline, or if not even borderline, full-on grief that many of us are walking around not knowing, why do I feel this way? I had never felt this way. I can't shake the blues or I can't sleep or I just feel down or whatever it may be. I'm triggered. Um, it, all of this could be, it can be numerous things, but, but this idea of processing grief physically, emotionally, physiologically could be something that we're going through collectively and certainly everybody in their own hearts and minds. Would you agree with that? I do. Absolutely. And I think the way that I would phrase it for, for the sake of time and kind of the scope of the conversation, Bob, is I think if you look metaphorically at everything that everybody is going through the same way that we would a miscarriage, it will mm. give everyone much more relevant context, right? Mm. And think of this as a miscarriage of hope or the inability to be pregnant or the inability, or even what we see the fourth trimester, somebody gives birth is the joy of that thing coming to life. But then there's a massive degree of recovery because you just went through a heavy effort to, to bring that thing to life in the first place, right? right? So if you look at the last year and a half, I've got a lot of friends in Atlanta that own restaurants. I mean, a lot of friends that own restaurants and breweries and establishments that are quintessentially dependent on foot traffic and patrons. And the number of people in those industries that had a significant miscarriage of hope, right? They have this dream that they've worked on, they've brought it to life, and then all of a sudden, everything gets taken away. They're losing 70, 80, 90% of their staff, and now they've turned into these relational and entrepreneurial hospice workers, where they're constantly navigating people who are going to be significantly impacted by a loss of income, a loss of connection, a loss of, of community. Now, there are people that are closing their businesses down who had so much hope, and mm. they're saying goodbye to things that are really important to them. And the reality is, is if you close a business down and that thing dies, your brain doesn't know how to process that dream dying any different than if an actual person died. That is grief. That is trauma. But then what happens if you don't feel like anyone's died, you weren't impacted financially, but now you're in a situation where you thrive on some degree of connection and you haven't been able to see the people who matter the most to you face to face. So now you're having a, a loss of intimacy. You're having a loss of community and you don't get that release of oxytocin that you get by being able to have physical contact or physical proximity. 
And your lack of oxytocin is dramatically affecting your ability to digest food and sleep well. You know, how much have we seen over the last 15 months that sleep disorders and anxiety and, 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 and all of these things that normally come up very heavily related to a trauma or a significant car accident or a miscarriage or a family member passing away? Our brain is processing so many of these adverse experiences as trauma. And the most helpful thing, I think the most important thing, is to come back to that question of, is my actual life in danger or is my way of life being threatened? Hmm. Am I actually in a life-threatening situation or is my life changing in a way that connects me with the felt sense of how uncomfortable this all is, but can I survive it? Can I make it another six months? Because this is a really important piece for people who are listening, is if you cannot survive without some degree of physical contact or some degree of proximity and community, and you're trying to figure that out, you're trying to figure out how to reopen your business or get your kids back into school or work from home and do a hybrid work situation, or figure out how to stay in love with a person that you weren't sure you're still in love with, but you've had the most proximity somebody with in the last 10 years of your relationship because you've been quarantined in the same home. Like these are really, really profoundly relevant things that are happening, right? right. I think in hindsight, we're going to see the number one time for divorce is after the first year. The number two is after the kids leave and you're empty nesting. I think in hindsight, what we're going to see is number three was what happened during COVID because in both the first year and after the kids leave, you increase proximity and you have a lot of FaceTime. So we're seeing a huge change in the health and the, and the stability of our, our proximate relationships in the same household. So I say mm. that I just mentioned a lot, but my point in saying all of that is I think it's going to be really, really important for everybody to be able to do two specific things. One, if they're downplaying the importance of what they've experienced and the consequence of what they've gone through over the last year and a half, it's going to be very, very important to touch base and check in with whether or not you are in denial and mm. you are not addressing something that legitimately impacted your system, whether you believe it or not. Because a lot of people, when they go through the stages of grief, the one of the first things that come in is denial. And on the other side of that, is somebody who is so overwhelmed with the encounter that they've had in the last year and a half that they feel like they are constantly in a state of survival, that being able to throttle that and go, God, this is so uncomfortable, but is it actually life-threatening? If it is, your response is going to be vastly different because if it is actually life-threatening and your life is in danger, either from self-harm or resources or security or finances, you are in a position where connecting with support and connecting with other people to keep you alive is profoundly important in that moment. Mm. And if you come to terms and realize this is so uncomfortable and this is so difficult, but my life is not actively in danger in real time as a present tense reality, then how mm. can I catch my breath and reconcile that this is so overwhelming, but it's not going to bury me? So you end up with these to two polarized encounters of either you're not you're you're under the impression that it hasn't impacted you, which is not true because you can't go through what we've gone through in the last 15 months. Because even if we say it hasn't impacted us, if you don't have empathy for your fellow man and what they've gone through, your fellow human being and what she's gone through, your inability to process how significantly it has impacted your neighbor is a clear indication of the lack of empathy you may have. And that's a diagnosis in and of itself. But if it's traumatizing you, 
but it's not actually life-threatening, then we have to, in all of these situations, I think realistically, Bob, we've, we've got to find a gauge between whether or not we're not taking it seriously enough or we're taking it too seriously, mm. or if it is that serious, are we connecting that with relevant resources and support to adequately address how serious it may in fact be? So that, that relative relationship of what, what our current lived experience is, is going to be, I think, really important for everybody to check in with. Yeah. What would you say, Dr. Jerome, is the one thing that you, a piece of advice that you would give people who are listening to this who say, gosh, I, so, I can so relate and definitely I'm just exhausted and burnt out from this and I'm ready to, to be my normal self. What's the one piece of advice that you would give the individual and then my second question would be, what's the one piece of advice you would give to people that are in leadership in organizations or businesses that have, that they're responsible for people? So the first one is the individual. What, what I know that's a, that's, that's a big question and, and I know it's situational depending on what someone is struggling with, but the average person who's listening to this, who says, you know, I want to be the best version of myself. It's been a hard year. What's the best piece of advice you can give to them? So it's, it's a great question, and I don't I don't want to trivialize the, the comprehensiveness of it. I think the first thing that comes to mind for me, you know, it sounds almost too simple, but there are fifty percent, fifty percent of the people that I see in a clinical setting that what they have in their life that they are dealing with can be fully resolved by coming back to the basics. So I'll give you what I call the six basics. The six basics, I think, regardless of where you're at, regardless of your human experience, they are relevant. The first one, above and beyond anything else, is to take a single deep breath. Hmm. If you cannot control your breathing, you are not in the driver's seat. And every decision that you make downstream is suspect. It's as simple as coming back to, can I proactively and intentionally choose to take a single deep breath in the midst of everything that I'm going through? Because I can't fix it. I can't change it. But can I take control of my ability to at least reconcile that one deep breath will give me some sense of stability? And it will. It's profound when you intentionally do it. One deep breath with intent can completely reorient the entire nature of the way that your body and your brain engage because what you can't do when you're running from a bear in the woods is stop and take a deep breath because you will get eaten so if you stop and take one single deep breath and that's the only thing you remember from the six basics it has to intrinsically tell your entire system the threat can't be so close that I have time to at least take a single deep breath or else I wouldn't manage being it. And if you can't take that single deep breath, that's an indication of the level of severity that you're experiencing with what you're currently going through. And then you do the best that you can, but maybe connect with somebody who can help you feel a, a, a stronger degree of felt safety, right? So okay. it's breathing, it's hydrating, Easy way to do your hydration is take your body weight, divide it by two, and then drink that many ounces of water, right? Okay. And if you're listening from a metric standpoint, convert to ounces, and then, and then you convert your weight to ounces, divide by two, that's how much you drink. Um, 
the next thing is going to be sleep. I think one of the things that we've seen historically over the last 15 months is our screen use has gone through the roof and screens are not kind to our brains or our fight or flight systems. The same thing that processes vertical eye movements processes your sympathetic startle response. So when you're on a phone scrolling in the middle of the night at 1 a.m. because you can't switch off, that's a really, really unhelpful long-term resource, but it's also very, very, very good for self-medicating and self-soothing. So being able to go, what am I doing with my sleep hygiene? I really highly recommend apps like Relax Melodies. I think it's a fantastic app that's free that you can use that can help you sleep. Then we're talking about the difference between sleep and rest. Rest you do intentionally while you're awake, where you choose not to engage or you choose to minimize how much you work uh, or how much you do. Great apps for resting are Calm, Insight Timer, and Headspace. I think those are really helpful. So you got, you've got Breathe hydrate, sleep, rest. But then you've also got nutrition. A lot of the times in these situations, we're seeing people over-medicate by overeating or self-soothe by overeating, or they completely lose their appetite and they're not eating at all. So in the whole scope of how big a conversation is around nutrition, just being able to check in with, am I eating the appropriate amount? Even if I'm not talking about a quality conversation, can I check in with a quantity conversation and start there? If you're not eating, taking a few bites is a great start. If you're eating too much, taking a few less bites is a great start and then go from there. And the last one is movement. You know, the, the nature of what's happened in a quarantine situation is a lot of us were given the impression that we couldn't go out. That doesn't mean that we couldn't get up. So increasing our conversation with gravity and moving and just even stepping outside our own front door and taking a deep breath, just because we've lost a lot of social engagement doesn't mean that we can't step outside of our house and take a deep breath in the afternoon and still maintain that social distance uh, as all of those things change. So it's, it's breathe first, and it's also hydrate, sleep, rest, eat, and move. And mm -hmm. tying that in with what leadership can do. I think those six basics are a really safe anchor to check sure. in with. But even more so, when you are in a leadership position, the single greatest thing that you have influence over or with, with your employees is the rest component. Hmm. This is not a situation where you can look at your employees and anticipate a higher degree of work load from them. They, the bodies of everybody coming into the workspace now are under more stress psychologically than they have been in the last year, regardless of your current state of mental health. Everybody is engaging it differently. So I think the most proactive thing that a healthy leader can do is build in times for rest and a really practical way to do that is if you are not running your team or running your own schedule on a Pomodoro technique, I would absolutely impl implement it immediately. And a Pomodoro technique, Pomodoro is Italian for tomato or tomato timer. So it's P-O-M-O-D-O-R-O. -O -O. And if you just Google Pomodoro timer on any app store or on the Google, you can find an app that will help you say, every 25 minutes, I'm going to take a five-minute break. I'm mm -hmm. going to take a deep breath. I'm going to grab a sip of water. I'm going to move my body. I'm going to rest. You can accomplish almost everything in the six basics on that five-minute break. But for ourselves, but especially for leadership, proactively setting a culture that allows you to catch your breath every 25 minutes or so is a profoundly helpful way to refuel. And I think at the end of the day, the conversation that we're really having is one around margin and one around effective refueling. And one of the most important ways to do that is to protect our sleep, but also to give ourselves a chance to catch our breath and rest throughout the day. And as leaders, 
we can certainly implement that culturally. Yes, that's good. That's so good. This has been fascinating and so helpful. Dr. Jerome, how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about your practice, uh, your books? I know you have a lot of things going on. You have even online training. What's the best source for that? Yeah, fortunately, thanks to a great team, including my twin brother, everything has been consolidated to drjerome.com. It's just D-R-J-E-R-O-M-E.com. And everything that you need from resources, including clinical contact, is through that website. And uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us through the contact form there. And my incredible executive assistant, Janet, who is my gatekeeper, will do a, a wonderful job of getting back in touch. What's next on the horizon for you? What are you excited about in your work over the next? What a great question. The bullet points, we're going to have a book proposal for the second volume, which is going to be significantly more expansive in the next six weeks. On the Enneagram, uh, I'm right? working mm-hmm. on the yeah, brain-based Enneagram, but actually uh, moving into to much more comprehensive work around the whole identity, which is bigger than the Enneagram, but includes the Enneagram. Great. We're working on a, a five-tier curriculum for folks who want to have you know an encounter with just kind of an everyday passing knowledge of what it means to have a whole identity all the way up to you know a full graduate level understanding of how to implement this in clinical practice for licensed professionals right. there's a new podcast coming we recorded about a dozen episodes already and we're we're looking at getting that out it'll be called whole identity and that hopefully will be out in the next 2 months so new book new podcast new curriculum and hopefully some some new spaces to connect with people in person and and take care of them as well. That's awesome. This has been fantastic. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your work. And for those that are in and around Georgia, certainly look up drjerome.com. You might have to schedule out a, a few weeks. And I'm sure, Dr. Jerome, you can even refer people if, if you can't see them in a timely manner as well. Absolutely. Unfortunately, we actually have I've hired a, a new doctor who starts at the end of July, and that will hopefully as quickly as possible, once he's up to speed and onboarded, we'll be able to minimize that wait list as much as possible because I know what it's like to find somebody that you feel can help, but then you have to wait to see them. And we're going to try not to have that, have, have folks have that experience either. So we appreciate it. I appreciate the time to be on the call with you, Bob, and, and the chance to have the conversation. I think, you know, the, the, there's such an opportunity for us to connect and be in community and decrease isolation. So even Absolutely. the chance to be on the phone call with you uh, and be on the, on the podcast with you, I think, you know, the thing I'll leave everybody with, proximity is not a prerequisite for connection. So even if we're not able to be in the same room and be face-to-face, it's amazing what we can experience if we can just get some FaceTime and and get some Skype and get some Zoom and get some chance to just be in what feels like a similar container with each other. So proximity is not a prerequisite for connection. So just avoid isolation and it will change the way that you feel, you think, and the way that your body shows up in the world. Thank you, Dr. Jerome. And you know, we'll keep following you online. I'm looking forward to your podcast. What's it going to be called? It's going to be called Whole Identity, the Art, Science, and Practice of Becoming Whole. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Well, you have a great day. Continue doing what you do, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Bob. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye.